Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Being diagnosed with cancer and then starting chemo or radiation therapy can take a big toll on the body. One lesser known consequence of this treatment is the effect it can have on fertility. Dr. Kara Goldman, Medical Director of Fertility Preservation at Northwestern Medicine, says we're still learning just how far this impact goes. The type of cancer absolutely does matter, but when we think about chemotherapy, let's say we have a patient who has Lymphoma, some patients with lymphoma will have a much less aggressive type of chemotherapy that may not impact the ovaries as much as another type of chemotherapy. So the type of cancer matters absolutely, but more specifically, the type of treatment for that particular cancer is what dictates the risk. Goldman is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology with a focus on reproductive endocrinology and infertility at Northwestern University. She notes that scientists have long understood the fallout from chemo and radiation therapy, but have only recently been able to step in and help preserve patients' fertility. So years ago, there would be publications explaining the impact of chemo on fertility and the resulting infertility and the fact that people would need to think about adoption and being infertile without any kind of intervention to prevent the resulting infertility. Now we know there are absolutely ways to prevent secondary infertility or primary infertility after cancer treatments. Some of these options include egg and embryo freezing. Shelly Batista and her husband were already thinking about expanding their family when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Instead of relying on her oncologist to bring up the issue of fertility, the couple came ready with questions. It was top of mind for us where it's not top of mind for these oncologists and these breast surgeons. Unfortunately, yet that's not like a conversation that they're having even with young women who are being diagnosed with breast cancer. So I do think that if we hadn't been the one to kind of advocate and speak up about what our future family might look like, that the thought of doing fertility preservation prior to chemotherapy wouldn't have been a discussion had with those doctors. Unfortunately, I've been part of support groups that that wasn't a topic of conversation before these women went through treatment. And now they're in situations where they're unable to have children. While this is Batista's story, it's important to note that this isn't automatically the experience every patient encounters. Either way, it's important to understand what options are available. And it's not just women who should be in the know. Both men and women can suffer from these fertility issues, but Goldman says the people most at risk are women nearing menopause. So the older you are when you're exposed to chemo, the higher the chance that you're going to be infertile after your treatment. Different chemo drugs are going to come with different risks. So drugs like cyclophosphamide, which is an alkylating agent, it just happens to be one of the drugs that's used most frequently in breast cancer and some types of lymphoma. The cancers that young people have, unfortunately, they're treated with these really intense regimens that will impact the ovary. And though men are at risk of losing their fertility, Goldman says it's much easier for them to preserve their sperm. 
because it just requires, in most cases, obtaining an ejaculated semen sample. And so men prior to chemo can produce a number of samples. It's less expensive. It's easier. It's just more accessible. And when we think about semen collection, we know that there are companies now that offer at-home semen collection. You can mail in your sample and preserve fertility that way if you are preserving sperm. The reality is there's kind of more options there for men, whereas for women, this has to be done in this one way. And it's so technical and so expensive and really hard to access for so many. And while men have the option of mailing in their sample, the process is much more intense for female patients, requiring shots, surgery, and anesthesia. When we think about egg and embryo freezing, it does require a highly specialized center that can offer this care. It requires about 10 to 12 days of injecting yourself with medications to stimulate the ovaries, and then you have to have an egg retrieval procedure in this highly specialized center that's attached to an embryology laboratory. The injections use lab-made hormones to stimulate egg production, and other medications may be used to help the eggs mature, delay ovulation, or prepare the uterine lining for the egg collection surgery. During the procedure, a thin needle is inserted through either the stomach or vaginal canal into the follicles, where the eggs are stored. The needle is connected to a suction device that can retrieve multiple eggs in about 20 minutes. And though the process is much more complex for women, both genders are up against the clock when it comes to fertility preservation. Once they start chemo or have radiation, their fertility is already affected. You know, we have this very narrow window during which we can think about things like preserving fertility so that when you survive your cancer and in 10 years are ready to start your family, you can then have eggs or embryos frozen for you to have a baby. Batista was lucky enough to have the time to go through the process before she needed to start her cancer treatment. Luckily, I was given like a month to month and a half timeline of we have to do X, Y, and Z anyways in terms of getting a port placement put in for me. And so I was able to kind of do some of the pre-treatment stuff for the cancer side, but also my fertility stuff at the same time, which was amazing. Goldman guided Batista through the process, getting her started right away on the medications needed for egg retrieval. I believe I had 15 eggs that were retrieved and then a final of eight embryos that we were able to freeze, um, which we were so, so lucky for. And having Dr. Goldman like talk me through the whole process and knowing that all these embryos were super healthy and that we hopefully would have a good outcome after I was done with my cancer treatment was obviously, it was nice to have someone talk me through the process and have a positive outlook on it too. Batista's egg retrieval was made possible partly because of her close proximity to Northwestern Memorial Hospital in downtown Chicago. Her usual 45-minute drive was made even shorter with the lack of traffic due to COVID stay-at-home orders. But Goldman says this type of access is rare for millions of other women. There just aren't that many reproductive endocrinologists in the country, and there just aren't that many fertility clinics. And so what we wanted to figure out was where are all of these centers located who can offer this kind of care? And where are all the patients located who need this kind of care? And is there overlap or are there parts of the country where patients just can't access this? Goldman answered these questions with her recent paper published in JAMA Oncology. Researchers sought out women between 15 and 44 years old who would need access to fertility preservation centers if diagnosed with cancer. Then they looked at where fertility clinics are stationed in America and how many women in this group lived within a two-hour drive of their nearest one. And so essentially found that there are 3.63 million female patients 
self-identified female patients age 15 to 44 years old, or 5.7% of this at-risk population in the continental US who live outside of a two-hour travel time radius from a fertility clinic who can offer this care. So that's 3.63 million women who potentially are gonna be diagnosed with cancer who really could not geographically access this care even if they could pay for it. For many people, financing fertility preservation is the main obstacle. So even if we suddenly had clinics on every corner, it may still be an impossible situation for women whose insurance refuses to cover the treatment. When we think of these procedures, at minimum, it's going to be you know $7,000 for an egg freeze cycle. It can be upwards of $15,000. That's really often not including the cost of medications. There are absolutely medication assistance programs that are very helpful in helping patients access meds. There are clinic discounts, there are grant programs that people can apply for, but at the end of the day, this is still very challenging for most people to access, and very few people have this amount of money sitting around. Only a handful of states have mandated insurance coverage for fertility preservation. Illinois, where Batista lives, happens to be one of them. We knew we wanted to have a bigger family, and to be able to do it my husband and I together to create these embryos and not have to worry about the financial burden up front was amazing. I can't imagine like having that additional stress of having to decide like financially, can we commit to this on top of not even beginning my cancer treatment yet and all those financial burdens. And then of course, there's always like the risk of them. You're spending all this money and it potentially could not work too. Batista admits she may not have gone through with it if insurance hadn't covered some of the cost. Goldman argues that fertility preservation should be covered in all 50 states because the risk of infertility is a product of cancer treatments. Other side effects of cancer treatment are covered by insurance. And infertility is absolutely a side effect of cancer treatment. And so just common sense says that this should be covered. And the only reason it hasn't been in the past is there hasn't been a big push to cover it. And so that's where groups like the Alliance for Fertility Preservation came along. So this is an absolutely phenomenal group run by a woman named Joyce Reineke. She was a cancer survivor herself, and she's a lawyer. And she essentially has, in a grassroots effort through this group, kind of gone state by state to get legislation passed. So far, the group has helped 16 states pass legislation for fertility preservation. Goldman says the next steps are to continue pushing for insurance coverage and building more clinics for the 3.63 million women at risk who live more than two hours from proper care. These are individual people who have hopes of achieving a family and often are completely blindsided by their cancer diagnosis. And in addition to thinking about their future and their mortality and you know things that most 20-year-olds or 25-year-olds never have to think about, are now thinking about, am I going to have a child? If I'm infertile, what am I going to tell my future partner? And how does this change kind of every part of my life as I saw it? And so it is for the individual person who is going through this, it's an absolutely crushing thing to think about not just cancer, but infertility along with it. And so I think, you know, this care isn't just a two-week procedure that we need to offer. Like this is offering people hope and a future family that everyone should have a right to. Today, Batista is celebrating two years in remission. A year after finishing her breast cancer treatments, her doctor gave her the green light to start trying for a second baby. The couple now has a four-year-old daughter and two identical twin girls who just turned eight months old. 
You can find more information about Dr. Kara Goldman, Shelley Batista, and all of our guests on our website, radiohealthjournal.org. Our writer-producer is Kristen Farah. Our executive producer is Amira Zaveri. I'm Elizabeth Westfield. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal. I love much of what we have to offer in conventional medicine. It's just, it's often too heavy-handed for many of the common problems that people are living with. Have we been relying too much on medication to fix our problems? Then how to heal plantar fasciitis before it becomes a chronic problem. You can also have acute plantar fasciitis on top of plantar fasciosis, chronic. So you can have both acute and chronic. All that and more on Radio Health Journal. I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. You can give it descriptors like be brief, be informal, be professional, be kind. Don't quite know how to interact with AI? We dive into all things chat GPT this week. Then. Somebody is worried about me, is seeing me, and is trying to take care of me. Maui, Morocco, Libya. How to help victims of natural disasters in more ways than one. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal.